Now, if you grew up in the 1980s, you would know that there was a time before Spotify and the way in which we listen to music today. Uh, You had the radio and you had cassette players. You'd move past records and cassettes were, um, at least when I was growing up in the 80s, the way in which you accessed music. And there was a special type of cassette tape. It was a cassette tape that wasn't bought or produced. It was a cassette tape that you produced. It was known as the mixtape. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the mixtape. What you would do, uh, or what many of us did somewhat illegally, is that you would wait till you heard the song on the radio that you loved and you would press record. And um, then you'd wait until the next song um, came that you loved. And so what you did is you compiled quite an, well, at least for me, quite an eclectic, uh, eclectic taste of music all in the one cassette. It wasn't an album. Uh, it wasn't particularly curated. It was made up of whatever you liked and whatever you could grab. You just put it all together there in the one tape, a mixtape. Well, in Colossae, the, those in Colossae, sorry, were doing this with religion. It was the mixtape of religion. They had taken bits and pieces of kind of what they had liked and what they had heard and they tried to put it in one package. Uh, The technical word for this is syncretism. It's a mixture of various beliefs put together, a mixture of Jewish beliefs, a mixture of Greek pagan beliefs and a mixture of Christianity all jumbled together in the one package. This morning we read of some of these practices, uh, Jewish practices mixed with cultic practices and pagan elements. And now up until this point, Paul hasn't said much about why he's writing or indeed the heresy that he's been writing about. He's spoken a lot about Jesus in the first chapter, about how great he is, about how powerful he is. But now in this section from verses 8 following, Paul focuses his attention in not a detailed way, but in some way to speak of some of this false teaching that has entered the church in Colossae. And what Paul has been reminding these Colossians, what we've seen so far in the book of Colossians is at the end of the day, what this false teaching communicated is that you need Jesus plus some of these practices from Judaism or from paganism and Greek thinking. Jesus plus something else. But Paul has been reminding us throughout this letter that the gospel that, that is not the gospel and that is not good news. Paul's consistent message throughout the, this letter is that Christ is enough. He is the creator of this world. He is the one for who this world is sustained. He is the reconciler of all things and indeed the head over the church. If you have Christ, you have it all and you have enough. And so you don't need to borrow to supplement your Christian faith. It doesn't need to be Jesus plus anything because if you have Jesus, you have enough. We encounter this kind of thinking Perhaps uh, overseas in other countries, this kind of 
syncretism, this way of just grabbing ideas and trying to mix them with Christianity in other countries and other places. We see this with ancestor worship or incorporating traditional magic within Christian worship in Australia. Uh, These uh, are perhaps issues for some, but for many of us in Australia, we want the Christian gospel, but we want Jesus plus sometimes prosperity, wealth. Uh, For some, it's Jesus plus a certain political view. For others, it's Jesus plus a view of our lives to do with our health and happiness, what the sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism, the kind of idea that's very popular in our world, whereby the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. We want to mix these kinds of ideas into our Christian faith. But the problem is that none of it is good news. You can't improve on the gospel of Jesus and his supremacy. And the moment you add anything to Jesus and his supremacy, you lose this gospel. You lose the good news of the gospel. You lose the freedom of the gospel. And that's why this mixtape religion, this syncretism of adding other things into Christian faith is deadly because it leads to destruction. Paul is serious about this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He speaks about Jesus and wanting to preach him. It's not just for the conversion of those who don't know him. It is, but it's not just for that. Back in verse 28 in chapter 1, it's for warning. It's to let people know that there is imminent danger. Um, if you drive up north to Newcastle on the freeway, you'll see, I think it's on your left, a, a very high tower just past Hornsby. And in that tower, you can go up, it's, I don't know, 30, 40 metres in the air, and I've never been in there, but I imagine you can cast uh, and survey the whole of the landscape. And it's a fire warning tower. Perhaps some bloke gets up there when, you know, when there's a threat of fire, and he, and he looks over, and he could see the, the potential or an incoming fire front. And he can sound the alarm. Well, that's what Paul's doing. He's up on this tower and he can see this bushfire of false teaching. It sounds really attractive. Yes, you can have Jesus, but we can sneak in a little bit else and it'll be fine. You'll have the best of both worlds. Who doesn't want the best of both worlds? Paul says, you won't have the best of both worlds. You won't even have Jesus. Last week we saw that Paul was wanting to bring these Colossians back to the centre of their faith. Centre of their faith back in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. And we saw last week this great summary of the Christian life, where the Christian life is about three things. It's about consistency. It's just about keeping on walking with Jesus. It's not running ahead in a sprint with Jesus. It's plotting. Day after day with Jesus. It's about consistency. There in verse 6, it's also um, in verse 7 as well, it's about stability. It's about being built up in him, established in the faith. And this stability has both a relational component. It's about being in Jesus, walking with him. But it also has an instructional instructional component. Verse 7, just as you were taught. And finally, 
it's not just the Christian life is not just about consistency and stability. It's about memory. It's about remembering what Jesus has done. We should never forget what Jesus has done. We should be overflowing with thankfulness. And so off the back of taking them back to the Lord Jesus, Paul now moves in this section to help them to see this threat, this bushfire that is approaching and perhaps is already even there. Because we might have known, you know, energetic, vibrant, educated, active Christian people. And we might have known some of these people to drift away from Christianity, sometimes slowly, sometimes rapidly. And Paul is reminding us here that it's possible to be led astray. And indeed, it happened in the Colossian, for the Colossians, and indeed, it can happen to us today. Paul is attempting in this section, in verse 8 following, to dismantle the arguments for those who would seek to lead these Colossians astray. He's charged them, in verses 6 and 7, positively, keep going in Jesus. Keep walking in him. Keep being thankful. And now we have the negative statement where he's warning them against the, thing, the very things that would uproot them and take them away. Have a look there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's important to understand what Paul is saying here. Um, the Apostle Paul, I don't think, is saying that philosophy in itself is the problem. Um, in many ways, the word philosophy means love of wisdom. And the kind of philosophy that Paul uh, speaks of here was no doubt in reference to the philosophy of the day. Wisdom was very, very um, valued within the culture of the ancient world. And indeed, Judaism and Christianity would have been seen as a wisdom kind of religion because it has this element. Both Judaism and Christianity has this element of considering the whole self, the whole self in terms of reality and in terms of life. And so I don't think Paul's questioning the pursuit of wisdom. Paul is addressing here a combination of a kind of wisdom that had crept into the Colossian church, a kind of Greek-inspired wisdom that had been caught up with some Old Testament ideas and this had been peddled out to those in Colossae as wisdom. The kind of idea that was present probably in the church in Colossae was this idea, and this was kind of the world in which the Colossian church swam in, was what we might call Gnosticism. And Gnosticism um, has this concept whereby God is beyond us, and we, we can't really know God. He's just too far and too big for us to know. So what we have to do is we have to kind of walk towards him up a staircase of lesser goal, gods, a chain making our way to God, a ladder, if you like. And the way you move along this ladder and the way you move up to this God that's beyond us, this God who can't be known, is by 
reciting special words in prayer, incantations, um, participating in special rites. And if you do enough of these rites and say enough of these prayers, then you'll move towards God. And these prayers, well, they're, they're hidden from, from just normal people. Uh, you have to understand the specialness of these prayers from these false teachers. And so this was mixed, this idea of Gnosticism, this way of working our way up to God, mixed together with some Jewish kind of thinking around rites and rituals. If you just take these two ideas, you put them together, you listen to these false teachers, they will give you the streamlined express lane to God. Yes, Jesus is helpful, he's part of that, but don't you want the express lane to God? This is what the false teachers were saying. And it was tempting. It was seductive. It was enticing and it was deadly to these Christians. And Paul outlines in these verses, in verses 8 following, the characteristics of this false teaching. I've got four for us there in verse 8. Firstly, it's deceptive. It was deceptive because it sounded really good. Now, we come across deceptive language all the time, and the Gnostics had particularly deceptive language. It was impressive. Uh, it was attractive. It sounded really good. It was, in one sense, rational. But it failed to lead people to Jesus. It was empty but powerful. It was perhaps even sincere, but it was seductive and deadly in its deception. So firstly, it was deceptive. Secondly, it was ancient. You see in that phrase, according to the tradition of men. Um, it, and this was kind of part of its appeal. Uh, you know, this has been handed down to us. We haven't made this up. This has been handed down generation after generation it worked for them in the past, and so it must work for you. It's deceptive, it's ancient. Thirdly, it's demon-controlled. When it says they're the elemental principles, it could be perhaps better translated as spirits. Um, Paul is making it clear that although there's a logic and a rationality and an appeal to this false teaching, behind it is a spiritual force. And I think this is true for us today. The kind of false teaching that attracts us has both those realities. There's an appeal in its logic. There's an appeal in its sounding powerful. And yet behind it is uh, the work of the devil. And it's not only deceptive, ancient and demon control, but thirdly in verse 8 we see there that it's enslaving. Uh, these Christians are being kidnapped, taken into bondage, taken captive. And so this empty and deceitful kind of false teaching um, that's based on human tradition is its problem is not necessarily that it's appealing 
to wisdom. And it's not necessarily that it's come from human tradition. The problem, the fundamental problem, is that it's empty of Christ. This is the danger. And so Paul wants to help this church resist. So how are they to resist? Well, Paul reminds them in verse 9 of who Jesus is. And he reminds them in, in a particular way. He wants to say that there are, there are two reasons why they should resist this false teaching. Firstly, because of Jesus' divinity. And secondly, because they've been made complete. You see there in verse 9 that Paul reminds the Colossians, that in Jesus the fullness of God dwells. This is reminiscent of the Gospel of John, where we see that the Word, the Word who was with God in the beginning, has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The fullness of God dwells in the Lord Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus... And in the fullness that he brings, you will be made complete. That's a second section there in verse 9. We are full of his fullness, if you like. It's a permanent reality. We can't hold the fullness of deity. In one sense, perhaps the Gnostics were right. You know, we can't get close to God. There's truth in that. There's logic to that. God is beyond us. But in the Lord Jesus, God has come to us and he's come to us fully. And so we can't hold the fullness of the deity. We can't imagine that we could get close to God in and of ourselves. But when we trust in him, when we trust in the Lord Jesus, we are full of him. We are but that cup of the ocean, the cup of is not full. Uh, the cup is full of the ocean, but it doesn't contain all the ocean. His fullness is infinite. But when we trust in the Lord Jesus, he comes to fill us. And it's like our spirits are, are, are elastic. They grow with his filling of us. His fullness meets us. His fullness meets us in who we are and in our individual need. When we trust in Jesus, we're connected with him. And this is not a pit stop, just a, you know, a top-up of divine life or something like that. When we trust in the Lord Jesus, we are fully connected to the source. And because of our emptiness, when we trust in the Lord Jesus, he comes to fill us. He comes to fill us. And this is important for us to remember because what is the Lord Jesus to you? Well, we're, we're reminded that he is the fullness of the deity and that fullness has come to us. And so he is, for the poor, he is wealth. For the guilty, he is forgiveness. For the dying, he is life. For the desperate, he is hope. For the broken, he is healing. You have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head of every power and authority. Nothing can take you. Nothing can hold you. False teaching will take you captive, 
But nothing can touch you when the fullness of the deity dwells in the Lord Jesus and you are joined with him. If you have Jesus, you have fullness. And the connection with verse 9 is clear there in verse 10. Uh, It's the same word or similar word that's used there, that we as people who trust in the Lord Jesus are to be satisfied fully because we have been filled in the one who contains the fullness of deity, the Lord Jesus. It's not partial because Jesus isn't partial. It's complete because Jesus is complete. And this is Paul's point there in that next section there in verse 11. This reality is, one, when Jesus fills us, because within him is 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 the fullness of Christ, within Christ is all fullness, sorry. When we trust in him, there is an inward change. That's Paul's next point there in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. See, what Paul is saying here is when you trust in the Lord Jesus, there is a profound change. There is a profound change that occurs. It's a spiritual change. It's real. And it's done by the Lord Jesus himself. It's not empty or merely physical. But it's a spiritual change. We are circumcised inwardly. And Christ is the one who is working that change, who is cutting off that old life from us. And so he is, uh, we have been given fullness in Christ. And this change is real and spiritual. And finally, we have been given victory. Victory in the Lord Jesus There in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you have Jesus, you have everything. You don't need a little bit of Jesus and a booster from false teaching, a booster from what our world can offer. When you trust in the Lord Jesus, you're buried with him, he says there, buried with Jesus in baptism. And when Jesus speaks about being buried here in baptism, he's referring to this physical reality, a little like the circumcision. He's not talking about the physical act. The Apostle Paul is not talking about the physical act of baptism here. He's talking about it as a metaphor to symbolise being joined with Jesus, being united with him, being plunged into his life. We're baptised with him in his death and in his burial. You see, these false teaching is deadly and it's dangerous and it's not it's not a problem simply because it's wrong it is wrong but that's not why it's a problem it's a problem because of its result it takes us away from the source it takes us away from the one who seeks to fill us it takes us away from the one who has united himself with us in baptism And he hasn't just united us in baptism, he's raised us with him in verse 12. We as Christian believers participate with Jesus in his death, burial and resurrection. The Apostle Paul speaks about this elsewhere. He speaks about this in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6 verse 5 where he says, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And which is great. 
It's something to look forward to in Paul's mind in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. The resurrection with Christ is a future event. You will be raised. But here in Colossians, you have been raised. The emphasis is on the accomplished act of God. And so it's not just something to look forward to. This reality of being united with Jesus, of being joined with him in baptism, of being raised with him even now, is at work. You don't need to go elsewhere to, to false teaching, to what the world can offer. Jesus is offering fullness. He is offering resurrection power now. It's a present reality because of Christ's resurrection. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Paul wants to remind them that when you trust in Jesus, through faith, he says there in verse 12, you take hold of Christ's resurrection power. See, Christ's power is not merely for our forgiveness. It is. And that is an incredible power that we as sinners might be forgiven. But Christ's power is also at work in us for newness, for life, for being sustained, for being renewed, for being carried higher than we could ever go. Through faith, we participate with God's universal and reconciling power. And that power is at work in us, not just in our forgiveness, but that power that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, that power, that creative power, is at work within us. And so we, this morning, need to be reminded that when we have Jesus, we have everything. When we trust in Jesus, we have God's power at work in us to fill us, to satisfy us, and to draw us close to God through Jesus. Amen.